Hi, everyone. This is NBC 10 Boston's question and answer series about Russia's war in Ukraine. Please uh, continue to send your questions to ukrainequestions at nbcuni.com. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University and Oleg Kotsuba of Harvard University. Thank you guys for being here every week. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. So as we talked about last week, a new phase of the war is, is underway at this point where Russia is really focusing in the eastern region of Ukraine, which is referred to commonly as the Donbass. And there has been some significant development uh, in the last week or so there. Uh, Mariupol is uh, sort of uh, continues to be under siege. The last I checked on that, there was uh, sort of one area left with the Ukrainian forces kind of surrounded. And uh, then there was the... Um, the sort of the Russian warship Moskva or Muskva, I'm not sure how to say that. Is that Mos correct? Of Moskva um, sank, and that was significant. So I'd like to get to that. And um, and then most recently, over the last week, too, uh, President Zelensky was warning that the world should sort of prepare for uh, President Vladimir Putin to use nuclear weapons. And that's what I want to start talking to you guys about. Is uh, is that is that a, is that a concern for you guys? Because we have talked about the fact that if nuclear weapons were used, there would be significant uh, response from the West. Uh, so, how likely is that uh, at this point? What do you think, Maya? I think there's been the possibility of of a nuclear escalation from the beginning, but in some ways. It's more possible now, mainly because uh, the Russian military is weakening and um, there's a kind of growing desperation, I think, on the part of Putin to be able to to say that in some way he has won. Um, you know, it's it's hard to predict something like this because it is it would represent such a huge escalation. There is a taboo against the use of nuclear weapons, even tactical nuclear weapons. Um, but in a in a sort of political sense, Putin could send a very strong signal about his um, determination to continue and to to really, you know, be the most powerful player in this whole whole war. Um, and the use of a tactical nuclear weapon would do that. It's in, in terms of the battlefield strategy, it doesn't accomplish that much actually because it's it's such a destructive weapon that that leaves um, a radioactive field in its wake. Uh, so that doesn't actually make it very easy for the Russian military to then kind of control that land uh, because it becomes quite dangerous um, and it's also destroyed. So what exactly are you controlling in the, in, in the first place anyway? Um, so I think if Putin uses these nuclear weapons, it's mainly to send a signal to the West and also to kind of try to demoralize and frighten the Ukrainians even further. Um, and one thing that is possible is that because of this, rather than sort of launching a, a tactical nuclear weapon on the battlefield, he could even do something like launch it out over the sea um, as a demonstration of his his resolve. Um, it would, I think, really, as you said, result in, in a big response politically, morally, strategically uh, from the West. And we could talk about sort of what that response could look like. But, um, you know, this would be the, the breaking of the taboo, uh, which, 
you know, has not been done for, for quite a while. And so I think it's something that would be a very, very significant escalation. Great. Um, so I think um, I think I, I agree that I think it's becoming more of a um, possibility. Um, so we have basically we're approaching the anniversary of uh, the victory in World War Two, which in Russia is celebrated on May 9th. And um, so they are preparing for a kind of military parade on the Red Square in, in, in Moscow, as well as in other cities and Putin needs some kind of a victory. Um, I don't think that they will achieve any significant um, gains in the next two, two and a half weeks in the Donbass region, uh, even if Mariupol fa falls. Uh, so that will, of course, free up you know a few thousand of Russian troops, but otherwise the momentum is still going to be the same. Um, and so the question is, of course, what is the real goal of using a tactical nuclear weapon? So as we know, the only known examples of the use of uh, nuclear weapons uh, are from World War II in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, so they kind of, of course, those weapons are not the same that may be used um, in, uh, you know, in Ukraine, but still the kind of the power of destruction is very strong. Uh, basically, you know, it's a bomb like that could completely wipe out a city of three, 400,000 uh, people, resulting in mass civil casualties. However, the, civil, the civilians are not the fighting force. So even if uh, you know, that, that horrible thing happens and, and hundreds of thousands of people die, it does not mean that Ukraine will be defeated in the war. Because once again, we have to be very clear what actually the, uh, the goal is for Putin in, in Ukraine. It's not so much the uh, you know, control of territory or in some way, you know, kind of, um, you know, some kind of, you know, dominating Ukraine territorially or militarily even. It's really the idea of Ukraine as a democracy that is integrated with the West, you know, that is self-ruled, you know, independent and so on. And so as long as there is any Ukrainian territory left and as long as the Ukrainian armed forces are able to fight, that is not going to be the case. And so I think that, um, again, it will achieve the opposite effect in Ukraine if it is used, if the tactical nuclear weapons are used. Uh, it will radicalize part of the, uh, uh, the population. So I think a lot more people are going to join in uh, the forces and try to help in which, whatever way they, they can. It also shows, uh, once again, if Putin is uh, truly considering the use of such weapons in Ukraine, it, it shows that he, he doesn't understand Ukraine at all. He truly assumes that Ukrainians and Russians are the same people, and that is not the case. Uh, and one last thing, um, you know, that we need to remember: even Hiroshima and Nagasaki have been rebuilt, and very successfully so, after they were destroyed. So one of the cities was only destroyed in half, right? As we know, because there is a mountain separating them. But that kind of those two cities became, you know, a sign and a kind of um, a marker of pride for the Japanese in rebuilding themselves and reforming themselves after the war. And so that kind of that kind of destruction is not, you know, a kind of a terminal, you know, some kind of terminal illness to the country. It does not destroy the country. It does not break the people. Yeah, no, I, I think I would agree with what's been said already. Uh, I do think there's two issues here at hand that we have to analyze. One, I think something we've mentioned before, 
and, and that Oleg was just alluding to, I mean, what is the objective of Putin, right? One thing is to sort of win the war or, or win the battle, which tactical nuclear weapons may help you do. But if your objective is to control the population and to have an actual occupation of sorts or have some sort of political control, that is definitely not going to help your ultimate objective, right? That, that is going to make it that much harder. So for that reason, I, I don't see necessarily... I think the the likelihood of, of, of we seeing a nuclear weapon being utilized has increased, but it's still a very minor risk. It's still, still a low risk, right? Because it's all these other political considerations. And I think ultimately the use of a nuclear weapon is a way to either deter, right? So you, in the case of the Second War, obviously the, the, the idea and the example was one of deterrence and the idea that that was going to shorten the war. Uh, so if, if Vladimir Putin does this, is because he's going to see or find some provocation elsewhere. So he's going to use it as some type of deterrence, uh, or, or he's going to really try to punish the Ukrainian population. I think the second use might be what we see here, and he might see the use of a nuclear weapon as a way to punish the Ukrainian population and as a way to punish the enemy for not doing what he thinks they should be doing. And I think that we could possibly see, particularly the longer the war goes on. And I think we're setting into a very uncomfortable pattern, perhaps, of a, of a very long war of attrition that can go on for months and months and years, where neither of the two sides is strong enough to achieve any of their objectives, but in which one of the sides has this ultimate, uh, ultimate tool, which is to punish the civilian population by dropping a nuclear weapon and basically achieving some degree of revenge. And if that is something that Putin calculates is going to go down well within its own constituency, in its own population, and we, we started to hear a little bit already some people in Russia, some uh, influential people in Russia criticizing, not Putin, but the war in itself and the way the war is carried out. Uh, and we saw some people criticizing the military in particular, which is pretty much untouchable in Russia. Uh, so if it's seen as somehow being helpful to the military objectives, whatever those may be, it may be used. But I still think we're a little bit far away from that. Uh, but it really depends on how the war proceeds. And if we manage to avoid this becoming a very long, very torturous, very slow war of attrition in which we, we reach some sort of stalemate that prolongs itself forever. And that's going to become incredibly costly for Putin. And the likelihood of nuclear weapon being utilized increases in, those, in that terms. Maya, did you want to quickly talk about what you think the response would be? Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in in the most worst case scenario, there's this threat that the use of a tactical nuclear weapon spreads into further use of more tactical nuclear weapons and then other countries be, being brought into this so that we're now looking at kind of a World War Three scenario with strategic nuclear weapons. Um, quickly escalating. So that's kind of the worst case scenario. I, I think it's unlikely to, to happen so easily, thankfully, because the West is so cautious about not escalating um, unless they're really forced to kind of get involved directly. So I think the West would sort of immediately condemn the use of a tactical nuclear weapon and and seriously analyze what are the circumstances behind it was this designed to threaten a nato country was this maybe even an accident um and it will do everything possible to avoid escalating beyond that but it does put many um, nuclear powers into a situation of potentially changing their posturing with their own nuclear weapons 
Um, so we're already seeing nine nuclear powers think about what should be their posturing right now with the weapons. And so if a tactical nuclear weapon is used by Russia, the next step could be a heightened um, sort of you know, situation with nuclear weapons around the world. And that's already dangerous, um, not just because you know, there could be pur purposeful escalation, but because there could be accidental escalation into a full-on nuclear war. And, and at that point, communication is going to be so crucial. So, so you just get the world into this very heightened sort of situation where there's a need to understand the intentions behind using the weapons or changing the, the standing or moving the weapons. Every step of the way, communication has to be clear. And as we know, if anything, communication with Russia is diminishing the, the diplomatic expulsions, the, the fact that the Russian generals are not returning communication with American generals. So um, it does create a very concerning situation, but I think the most immediate reaction will be this sort of powerful condemnation, the moral outrage, the, the political concern in all of this. Um, the taboo will be broken, but at the same time, the norm could, in a more optimistic light, be strengthened because other countries will face this situation that is unprecedented and dangerous. Um, and other countries in the world might really feel the need to act in a way that strengthens the norm against use for the future because of how close this will bring the world to the brink of nuclear war. Right. And Ola, you had mentioned the, the Russian warship that sunk Moscow. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the significance of that and, and what that says about <laughs> Russia and Russia's strength and their position in the in the war right now? Yeah. Uh, I think it's extremely significant uh, in a symbolic sense, but also in practical terms. As you know, Russia has been uh, doing some, like, or some or much of its shelling from over the Black Sea, um, but also from you know using various capabilities of their navy in the Black Sea. And the uh, Moskva is the, the, the you know the flagship basically of all of that of the entire fleet. And it has been praised uh, in the previous years as uh, this extremely uh, powerful and expensive weapon. Apparently, the cost was over $700 million to build it. And the fact that Ukraine um, was basically able to test its new development uh, in kind of rocket technology, the Neptune rockets are completely new and basically haven't been used in combat, as far as I understand yet. Um, and so, with uh, two of the two of the uh, of the rockets hitting the ship, they were able to sink it. Uh, so obviously, it I think it sent shockwaves through the Russian military, but also uh, in the society. Uh, we don't know the exact casualties on the ship. Uh, there are some interviews surfacing now with um, you know relatives and parents of of the uh, of the kind of the members of the crew of that of that uh, uh, ship. And there are various and there's various information surfacing right now. It's unclear how reliable it is, but just to kind of just to indicate what is kind of circulating in the media. Number one, kind of the 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 information, the part of information number one is that it was heading for Odessa, and the goal was to to have a kind of disembark there and try to take Odessa and kind of also using shelling and all of that from the ship. Uh, number two, that about forty to at least forty. Um, 
you know, uh, uh, crew members have perished during the sinking out of about 500, I believe is the total. Um, so, and number three, that a lot of kind of soldiers were not aware, you know, not of crew members were not aware what is going on there. So it's beginning to surface kind of in Russian uh, social media, also on Telegram and other uh, kind of uh, social media networks that are primarily used in Russia and that are less controlled. Um, it's unclear exactly. So Russian, the Russian Ministry of Defense is not admitting the cause of of the ship sinking. They're still sticking to the version of uh, you know a fire breaking out on the ship. But I think it has kind of it, the consequences here are in the Russian society itself right now. Um, you know, people are beginning to ask questions. You know, the fact that the family members, uh, the parents, are not getting answers, you know, is becoming a problem for you know politically within Russia. Number one, and of course, symbolically for Ukraine, you know, Moskva is the Russian name for Moscow, right? The kind of the capital of Russia. And so sinking Moscow, you know, is, and especially this being the most expensive, the most advanced, advanced, be, uh, you know, uh, vessel that um, the Russian fleet does have, of course, it, you know, it, it is hugely significant for Ukraine. Pablo, did you have anything to add on either, either question about the response or about the warship? Yeah, I think uh, two two very important points. I think in terms of yes, uh, the possible escalation of, of nuclear war, I, I I feel I agree with Maya that it's hard to see a full out nuclear war, as it were, and and the West would be very careful in his response, and and I agree that coordination is very very important, and particularly between NATO members, and and we shouldn't forget that right before this crisis emerged, and probably right before COVID. NATO wasn't necessarily at a, that it's at, the, at a very hot place, right? And I think uh, Macron said it was brain dead just just in, in late 2019, if I remember correctly. And NATO was sort of an aimless body, just trying to find a purpose in the world and trying to find something really to do. It, it has served the, the war in Ukraine has served sort of to focus the mind of the NATO members and to bring some sort of cohesion. But there is still very much the emergencies and different ideas about what to do in case of a nuclear attack, for example. And I also think domestic political realities play a very important part in these calculations. What is going on domestically with with these countries and what would they do, right? If, for example, if it were happening right now, uh, you know. Boris Johnson and Macron would be more keen to seem to be stronger, react stronger, maybe react in kind and show a stronger force because they're in trouble domestically. And both, and for both of them, the war in Ukraine is a very helpful distraction for the, from domestic issues, right? So there's a lot of different calculations, a lot of different variables that we have to take into consideration about what would happen. But I still think if it was, if it was a, 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 a nuclear war protected at civilians and it led to mass casualties of civilians, I really see, I would really very, find it very, very hard for NATO not to do something, uh, if not in kind, certainly to get more involved. You would have to try to either close the Ukrainian airspace or give more fighter jets to the Ukrainian military, get relatively more, a lot more hands-on conflict on the ground. Uh, I think that would be the, the, the step they would take. Uh, if this could lead later to greater sort of nuclear escalation, it depends on many different factors. It depends on how other countries outside the West react as well, how countries like China would react, how countries like India would react. You know, India is a very interesting country as well. India doesn't really, I don't think they would be particularly comfortable uh, with normalizing the use of tactical nuclear weapons 
with a neighbor like Pakistan, who would be, you know, and, and vice versa. So there's all these different calculations that we have to take under consideration. Um, so I think I still think this escalation it's it's hard to see, uh, but it's not as hard to see why Vladimir Putin sees the option of using a tactical nuclear weapon as attractive. And and part of that is, as Ola was saying, the failure of the of the military effort in in Russia. And and what we've hearing lately from Russia is that everyday people and normal people in Russia are starting to realize, if nothing else, they may not be questioning the reasons behind the invasion of Ukraine. But they're certainly starting to question the efficiency and the efficacy of the military. And that's probably worse for Vladimir Putin, because, you know, one thing is to be seen as ruthless, but you really don't want to be seen as ruthless and incompetent at the same time. Right. If you're going to be ruthless, you might very, very, you very well have to be very competent in your ruthlessness. If you're seen as ruthless and incompetent, that's a terrible combination for any dictator work their soul. Right. So. I think Vladimir Putin is finding himself in a very difficult position here. I think that's why he's trying to focus the war as much as he can, try to achieve some sort of, of victory. And if he doesn't achieve some sort of victory, the next best thing is try to achieve, uh, try to sell a defeat from the West somehow and try to paint what's happening in Ukraine as a defeat for, for the West. Uh, and that in turn means a victory for, for Russia. Uh, so this could be very well, and we've seen this happening before as well, try to bring and so divisions within NATO countries, divisions within the EU, uh, and we still see, again, we're starting to see some cracks starting to emerge in the German position, for example, uh, refusing to ban the imports of oil and gas. So there's, there's very several calculations there. Uh, but yeah, I, I still think this is going to become a very long process and a very long war and the risk for nuclear war and nuclear escalation is still there. If I could just add a quick point on China. Um, in 2013, China extended its nuclear deterrence to include Ukraine. So this is why it also becomes bigger than the, the use of a tactical nuclear weapon becomes bigger than the question of what does the West do? It becomes about kind of what do nuclear powers do? And China may not act, of course, but it's, it's something that draws it in in a way. Yes, and perhaps uh, a couple more points on the um, on the various scenarios that we discussed, right? Kind of for the uh, for Putin, uh, I think the inner political, internal political motivation is the primary one right now. Uh, Bill Browder, who was an investor in Russia for a long time, and you know who lost his investment there, and whose lawyer Magnitsky was later assassinated, right? For, you know, resulted in the end in passing the Magnitsky Act in the United States, and also kind of. Uh, similar uh, uh, legislation in in the EU countries, um, he he talks a lot about Putin as having this prison yard mentality, where kind of the kind of the biggest and the most vicious guy is you know has to be the kind of the guy running the uh, the prison yard, and so for him it's it's all about being humiliated right now, right? If he is not the most vicious, if he is not the strongest guy, then basically effectively, you know he will not be running that that prison yard anymore. Right in that particular case, Russia, right as a country, and so it's very important for him to be to to not look weak, and so I think that if if he does decide to go for the tactical nuclear weapons used in in Ukraine, it would be on, perhaps only to show that look how powerful and strong we are. Therefore, I am strong and powerful. I can do that, and then of course the West in that regard is in a very different position. Uh, the West has effectively signaled uh, its unwillingness to use uh, nuclear weapons. 
and that makes you know their their kind of nuclear capability very ineffective as a deterrent. We discussed that at a conference uh, last week that, that was at Northeastern that Maya organized, right? Kind of the, the effectiveness of a nuclear deter deterrent it is really measured on how con convincing the threat of using it really is. Yeah. And Putin so far has, you know, has been more convincing than the West because he does know that, you know, the, there are other capabilities in the, in the region, right, in Europe as well, but also United States who could retaliate, but obviously he doesn't believe that they will. And so, and so here is the dilemma that, you know, that the West is facing. Yeah, if I could just add, I think Oleg hits the nail on the head there, and I think there is, you know, and we've I think we've mentioned this before, but this the invasion of Ukraine pretty much stems from this idea that Vladimir Putin has that the the, the West is weak, and and the the projection of weakness from the West that pretty much emboldens Russia to do whatever it wants, and weakness particularly from the United States, or or if there is no weakness, is a lack of desire. To utilize his power and to do what the what the U.S. could possibly do, right? So, um, yes, to, to a certain extent, Vladimir Putin, I think, sees the United States as a reluctant hegemon, as a reluctant power that is very careful in how he uses his power, how it projects its own power. So it gives Vladimir Putin opportunities to do things like that. But obviously, this is a very dangerous game of chicken, and it's a very dangerous calculation that Vladimir Putin is engaging with because at the end of the day. The United States does remain the most powerful country in the world, and by some margin, and, and can do whatever damage it decides to do. So it's a very, very dangerous game of chicken for Vladimir Putin, one that so far has worked and has worked for other countries around the world as well. Uh, but there is no telling how the United States might react. If not, and you know, this obviously the, the, the great thing about democracy, of course, is that this administration can change to a very different administration in two years' time, and the calculation changes entirely as it did a couple of years ago, right? So it's 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 all very much up in the air and there's so many different variables that we need to consider. And the longer the war goes on, the harder it becomes to predict what exactly is going to change and what exactly is going to happen. Yeah, and kind of just maybe a couple of little things that, that can add to, to this. So number one is the public opinion in kind of around the world. I think that is a really important factor. Right now we have seen that, you know, against the background, the backdrop of failure of the elites, of the ruling elites in particular, be it economic or political elites, the public opinion has been a, a, a much more effective pressure factor in, uh, you know, enacting certain policies or kind of pushing for certain policies from these countries. In the, in the uh, uh, you know, unlikely case that uh, Putin does use uh, technical nuclear weapons on Ukraine, I think that the public opinion around the world is going to be so overwhelming it is going to put a lot of governments, you know, within NATO or or not, uh, to do you know a lot more to help Ukraine. That's number one. Mm -hmm. um, number two, I think um, um, what is important is to kind of again talking about the uh, goals in Ukraine. Um, uh, a, a, a social thinker in Ukraine, Yevhen Libovoitsky, has recently argued in in several pieces that he contributed to to various outlets that effectively the kind of the bulk of Ukraine, the mass of Ukraine have lost fear. Uh, you can only really uh, um, intimidate or oppress someone if you can play out their fears, right? What are the kind of the biggest fears? Losing your home, losing your family, losing your own life. A lot of people have ex already experienced that. There is for many, many people, not all, but for many, many people, the idea of losing that is not as, as um, 
you know, as strong of, as a, of a deterrent anymore. So again, this will only radicalize uh, the Ukrainians to fight and fight back and rebuild and integrate with the West even stronger. Absolutely. And just for the last few minutes we have left, I wanted to ask you about uh, something President Biden said recently. Uh, he called the, what, what's happening, the situation, what's happening in Ukraine, a genocide. And I believe President Biden said that what he it's becoming clearer and clearer that uh, he, that Putin wants Ukrainians to no, long, no longer exist or the Ukrainian sort of culture and people to no longer exist. And obviously there are some technicalities that go into really identifying and, and uh, officially determining something as a genocide. So Ola, would you start, would you just talk a little bit about the, the significance of Biden using yes. that term and, and what's been happening yeah. since? Yeah, so we need to remember that there is a UN, there is a UN document on genocide, basically that describes genocide as, uh, you know, a, a kind of a, a willful or targeted um, extermination of a group uh, based on their identity, right? Either uh, either ethnic or religious or other uh, other kind of identity, and um, unlike ethnical cleansing that kind of action of you know of extermination is not bound to a geographic area so it meaning that the identity itself is the problem not where the people leave leave right so because otherwise you can cleanse ethnically so to speak a certain territory and then control it without a problem so that's also what happened in history as we know so and based on what we see right now in ukraine the execution of uh, people who have who were no threat militarily to the uh, uh, to the Russian army, as well as the communications that have been intercepted between the soldiers, you know, commanders and soldiers, and kind of how they talked about all of this. Uh, plus, of course, uh, the statements made by various Russian politicians on on the uh, on the on the media, basically on television and so on as well as the publications in the uh, in this Kremlin controlled press such as the Ria Novosti article that we discussed last week basically talking about how Ukrainians are supposed to be denazified which would amount to a genocide of Ukrainians all speak to the fact that uh, indeed you know the actions are genocidal in Ukraine uh, and again so this the, the matter of technicalities of course is going to arise uh, you know once more evidence is collected However, the importance is in kind of in symbolism of calling it uh, a genocide lies in the fact that it will force countries who have so far abstained from uh, taking a position on the war in Ukraine and on Russia's action to actually uh, uh, perhaps distance themselves from Russia and to, if not help Ukraine, to at least not block certain Ukrainian attempts to get more help. Great. Uh, Pablo, Maya, did you have anything to add? Um, I think that was very comprehensive. I would just say, you know, it, it certainly takes a step further than just the war crimes accusation. And so it is quite meaningful to go from saying there's widespread evidence of war crimes to saying this is actually much more systematic. It's really <clears throat> targeting civilians um, in a kind of genocidal action for large scale killing. And I think that is what we're very much seeing, not simply war crimes, but large scale killing of innocent civilians in Ukraine because of their identity. So um, it it does definitely, I think, as Ola said, it, it does make countries have to 
sort of take this more seriously and take a stand on this. And that's really important because of the way in which this battle is being fought, not only in Ukraine, but, you know, in the court of public opinion, as well as politically and morally. So I think it's a helpful statement from Biden because it actually does reflect the reality there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, can I just, I would just say, I think in general, it's, it's a it's a sad set of affairs when you have to call something, something has to reach the level of genocide for some countries to actually take a stance. It's, it's really, really sad. And unfortunately, that's the reality we live in. And, and some countries won't do anything until a, a genocide starts to happen and there's clear evidence. And by that point, it's way too late. So yeah, it's a really sad state of affairs. Yeah, and in addition to, you know, sort of the horrifying evidence of war crimes that have come out and there have been a lot there's been a lot of stories about about that um there's also been stories about destruction of cultural sort of uh sort of pillars in in the ukrainian culture and and different artworks being destroyed and and this goes back i think even prior to the invasion so um that for me i think was another sort of uh sort of a marker of, of what separates genocide from um, from war crimes when we're thinking about this issue. We are out of time, so thank you guys so much. I really appreciate speaking with you all each week. It's really helpful to get your perspectives on what's been going on, and I will look forward to speaking with you all next Wednesday. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.